Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. How spiritually attuned are you to the things of God? Are you attuned to the things of God? Do you know what God is doing in our age, in the age in which we live? Are you a part of it? Are you sensitive to the things of God? And what he's doing. Do you know his will for your life? Are you actively seeking it? Are you walking with him? Or are you just kind of doing your own thing? That's sort of the thrust of the text this morning that we have in Acts. And uh, as we read it, I want you to take note of the individual names that are listed. There's a lot of names in these uh, few verses here, these 13 verses or so, and they're the literary clues as to what's going on. So take note of the individual names and the order that they are in. Let's start in verse 25 of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul, did you see that? There's the names in the order. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. And that mission was the mission of taking a love offering to the church in Jerusalem from Antioch. And we studied that in chapter 11. But taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas... Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This has always been kind of a, I don't know, a special passage to me. Um, I just, I love this. I don't know what it is, something about this descending uh, passage, this glimpse we get of the early church that I just love. But we see here the call of Barnabas and Saul in verses 1 through 3. Can I get the next slide, please? Thanks. You guys are great. Um, last week, Luke took us down to Jerusalem. You remember that? He gave us a glimpse of, uh, we were in Antioch, and then he takes us down to Jerusalem, and he kind of, well, that's not it. Uh, Can we, so, uh, fast forward about 13 slides. (laughs) Sorry, we're trying, rather than using PowerPoint, we've been using a a new thing, a new, new software thing, so, anyway, we're getting used to that. Uh, 
So we were in Antioch, then Luke gives us a glimpse of what's going on in Jerusalem, and what was going on there was persecution was flaring up again. You remember that? And James becomes the first martyred, you're going to see some really old slides, <laughs> but uh, James becomes the first martyred apostle, God rescues Peter, and he judges Herod, Herod dies, he's eaten by worms, right? a little too much information there, so if, if you uh, uh, missed that message, you might want to go check it out and see how a guy dies getting eaten by worms, but Today, we're back up north in Antioch of Syria, Syrian Antioch. For much of the book of Acts, though, we've been in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem has been the center of attention, right? It's the, the mother church. But in Acts chapter 11, God started to do a great work up in Antioch, in this pagan cosmopolitan place that's very diverse, and this becomes... You know, and Antioch is, up, by, by the way, it's just up there kind of in the armpit. This would be Turkey. Antioch's kind of up in the armpit of Turkey and uh, in that area. But it, it becomes the first major church that is established outside of Jerusalem, and it becomes the focus now and the base of operations for, for missions. You could say we're going from the mother church to the mission church. But we're not only going to switch locations now in the narrative of Acts, the main personality is also changing. The main personality, protagonist. Peter has been the man of the hour, right? God used Peter. We've been following Peter. He used Peter in Acts chapter 2 to open the door of salvation to the Jews. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 6, he, he used Peter to take the gospel to the, the Samaritans. He used him to, uh, in Acts chapter 10, to uh, open the door of salvation to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And so that's, that's what I think we see there is Peter using the keys of the kingdom to open the door of salvation. Remember when Jesus said that he would have the keys? Right? He, the key's the gospel, that, and he's using Peter to open the door of salvation. He's not standing at the gate of heaven, like letting people in and out. Yeah, you see the fulfillment of it in the book of Acts. Isn't that cool? So, um, from here on out, though, Peter is only going to be mentioned briefly, and the gospel is going to move now from the land of Israel to the expanses of the Roman Empire via Saul, whom we know as the Apostle Paul, right? Um, all of three, all three of Saul's missionary journeys are going to be launched from Antioch. And I want us to see the flow of the book of Acts because it helps us understand it. It helps us understand what's going on, what Luke is doing here. So in the first seven chapters, we were in Jerusalem. It was Peter. It was, it was all Jewish. These were Jewish people getting saved. The church was Jewish. And, and then in Acts chapter 8, verse 8 through 12, uh, that's the section where you go to Judea and Samaria through Peter, and it becomes a Jew and Gentile thing. And they're kind of blown away, like, whoa, God's saving the Gentiles too? Well, now what we see in chapter 13 is where we enter the third and main final section of the book of Acts, and Jews start to reject the gospel, and the church becomes predominantly Gentile. Okay, so we're about 15 years into it since the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church at Pentecost. 
But uh, Acts, that, that, what, what Luke is doing is, is he, he gave us, right, the outline in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and now he's following that. Remember that? The, you will, Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Acts chapter 2, and then from there you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, in Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12, and in the remote, remotest parts of the earth, the uttermost. And that's where we're at now. We're going to the uttermost. And this is exciting stuff, isn't it? We get to travel with Paul. We get to see the ancient world, Turkey and Greece and Rome. And I just can't wait. And I wish we could all go there and read the scriptures together while we're there. But that would be really expensive. And yeah, we don't have time for that. But um, <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll try to show some videos and things of these areas where Paul is going. And keep, check your emails and stuff. I'll be sending different videos of these sites. Um, but anyway, uh, let's just think about the timeline of events here for a little bit. Okay, up until this point in Acts, it seems like a lot of what has been happening has been spontaneous, right? The 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 leading of the Spirit, they're like always like in shock and all, like what this what's the Spirit gonna do next, right? Philip, Samaria to Azotus, and it's like what is he doing? You know, like the Spirit's just spontaneously leading this young church, persecution, spreading the gospel. You don't know what's going to happen. Okay? And, and it's all very new. It's all very exciting. The church is like just a newborn church. They're learning so much. They're being stretched beyond their comfort zones as God shows them and as He's teaching this young church uh, how Christ has fulfilled the law and how uh, he, there's no more need for the temple, living under the law of Moses. You know, he's accepting dirty Gentiles and Samaritans, those dogs. I mean, persecution. Right. There's been a lot happening in Acts. It's new, it's spontaneous, but we're 15 years into it. And the church now, what you're seeing in Acts chapter 13 is, is the church is starting to understand now how God's program has shifted. You know what I'm saying? It was shifting. They're learning, but now they understand how it has shifted, and this early spontaneity and youthfulness of the church is maturing. The church is maturing, and they are becoming more and more aware of what God is doing in the church age and how they can be a part of it. They're becoming more organized and more intentional. I love this. Also, let's be reminded from Acts 1.8 that the Spirit who empowers and guides the... It's the Spirit who empowers and guides the witnesses of Jesus. Don't you see that there? The Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going he's to empower you to be His witnesses. And He's going to lead them. He's going to guide them. I mean, all throughout the book of Acts, there's this emphasis on the person of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks, right? So He's not just a force. There's a theological... Uh, note we need to take home here, right? The, the Holy Spirit is a person, and He has divine intentions for our lives. He wants us to be a part of God's program. He wants us to be His witnesses. That's what you see here. He's the one who gives us new life. He gives us a new nature. He gives us power over sin. He gives us spiritual gifts. He reveals God's call on our life as we walk with Him. And that's our first takeaway. Spiritually attuned believers walk in step with the Spirit. They walk in step with the Spirit. They don't get ahead. They don't fall behind. They keep in step with the Spirit. 
They walk with God. Another way of saying this is that they're filled with the Spirit. They obey His clearly revealed will in Scripture. And they don't habitually walk by the lusts of the flesh. You know, in order, in order to be spiritually attuned, right, in harmony with God and His leading, we've got to walk with Him. We've got to keep in step with the Spirit. We can't just live our lives our way, do whatever we want, and expect to know God's will for our lives. It doesn't work that way. You've got to keep in step with Him. You've got to remain in fellowship with him, right? You're always in God's family once you're a believer, but you've got to stay in fellowship with him in order to stay attuned to how he's working in your life. Does that make sense? Right? So, so we're in fellowship with him. We're walking with him. We sin. What do we do at that point? Right? There's an interruption in the connection between us and God. Well, we confess it. We repent. We thank God for his forgiveness in Christ, 1 John 1.9. We confess, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? And so we get back to walking with him. That's how that works. So we, we maintain this circumspect, sensitive walk with God, and we become more aware of what his will is for our lives. And he, we, we, we hear him speak to us through various means. He, he might speak to us through the written word, he might speak to us during a worship service, through songs. He might speak to us through another, uh, another believer. But it's always going to line up with His Word, right? So if you're seeking God's will for your life, remember that. Get to know His Word. Get in His Word. Um, when the Spirit said to, to these guys, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them, we don't know exactly how God did it. Maybe he did it audibly. I don't know. Maybe he spoke to them from heaven. I mean, was it through the prophets that were there? Was it a still small voice in their hearts? I don't, I don't know. But there's probably a reason, don't you think, that Luke didn't get specific? Right? So that we, we wouldn't insist that God do the same for us before we're willing to follow God. I think there's a reason that he didn't get specific here. Um, but let's just think about these five men for a bit. For one, they're called prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers, and you have to think, this is, this is before the New Testament was written. Hey, wouldn't that be weird to not have a New Testament? So, so how did anyone know what New Testament theology and practice was? Right? They were so used to following, for so many, all these centuries, these mostly Jewish people, so used to following the Mosaic Law and the oral traditions that had been passed down to them and the Mishnah, that sort of thing. Well... How did they know what New Testament theology and practice was? Well, the answer was in the prophets. God raised up prophets, gave them the gift of prophecy. Divine revelation was delivered prophetically until the New Testament was completed. Then they, the prophet or other people with the gift of teaching, would break down what God had said. be kind of a neat... Neat time period to live in, wouldn't it be? I think it'd be kind of neat. So they'd, then they'd, they'd, they'd break down what God had said or what, what Scripture had been written for the churches, and they'd help the church to understand and apply it. And then in addition to the Old Testament, that's how the, the early, early church was edified. Aren't you guys glad, though? Like, we don't have to do that. We don't have to wait for a prophet to come and reveal God's Word to us. We have... 
his written word. We have everything that he was telling the early church, basically, in his word. So you, you have, what, if you want to know what, what he was telling the prophets to tell the church, just read his word. It's neat. We have his complete revelation. He doesn't have to keep revealing the same stuff over and over through prophets. It's right here. And you can take it home, and you can read it, and you can study it. It's amazing to think about how cool this is. Like how the church is maturing. They have the word of God, the canon. And, you know, spiritually attuned believers are going to listen to the word of God just like these guys are. They're seeking the word of God. They want to know what the word of God is for their lives. Don't you? Don't you want to hear God speak? Open his word. Sit under the teaching of his word. Get in his word for yourself. Pay attention to it because that's where God speaks to us the most is through his written word. His word is living and active, Hebrews 4 says. It's through the word he communicates with us. God can mightily use people who know his word. These men in, the, in, in, in Acts chapter 13, they were, they were men of the word. This isn't an ordinary book, guys. It wasn't just written by men. It was inspired by God. And it speaks. There's no other book like it in the world. But let's also learn something from these guys' names and their descriptions. Okay, Barnabas is a Jew from the island of Cyprus. And we're going to end up there uh, in, in verse 4. Uh, Simeon has a Jewish name, but his Latin name is Niger, which means uh, black, indicating he's dark-skinned. He's likely an African Jewish believer. So we've got a Jew from Cyprus, and we've got Simeon from Africa. We've got Lucius, a common Roman name from Cyrene in North Africa, uh, he's probably a Hellenistic believer, a Greek-influenced Jew. His copy of the Scriptures would have been Greek. It would have been the Septuagint. Um, Manaean, he's someone who grew up with Herod as a childhood friend or maybe a foster brother. We don't know exactly. All we know is that Manaean actually grew up with Herod, Herod Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist and, and tried Jesus. So if Manaean, so and that speaks like this is kind of a high-ranking guy, right? Somehow, I don't, we don't know much about him, but him and Herod were somehow childhood friends that grew up together, and that might explain, then, Luke's insight into Herod's circle, because Luke, in, in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, he records things that others don't. He seems to have an in on the circle of Herod. Saul, though, last in the list, is an ex-staunch Pharisee from Jerusalem, Hebrew of Hebrews, Hebrew everything. Right, So this is a very diverse bunch, isn't it? These these are five men leading this church from different backgrounds, different cultures, different places. They're they're all worshiping the Lord and working together in a church that's very diverse. And we looked at the diversity of the Antiochian church in chapter 11. This is amazing because churches like this are typically... A recipe for disaster, right? Uh, they're, they're from all over the place. I, I've, I've worked with like several cultures in one place, people from all over, and it can get kind of frustrating. It's like, we don't do it that way in North America. Well, this is how we do it in South America. Well, you guys aren't very efficient, so, you know, <laughs> you're not getting much done. But then there's things I noticed in South America, and I'm like, wow, we could really learn from that in North America. 
in the United States. So anyway, the cultural lines, it's just amazing. Like this could have been a recipe for disaster, but because these men are spiritually attuned, uh, they, they, they're, they're united. They have unity in Christ. They stay focused on their unity in Christ, and they stay focused on the mission. Do you see that? These guys are not focusing on all of their differences. They're focusing on the mission. And when you're focused on the mission, you're focused on eternal things that really matter, you're less likely to divide over things that don't matter. I like to say we're less likely, I point this out all the time, you know, we're less likely to divide over the color of the carpet or the paint on the wall. It doesn't matter. Who cares? This whole place could be pink. My daughter would love it. I wouldn't. But it doesn't matter, right? Focus on the mission. Uh, let's also note the call of God. There's so much here. Let's focus. Let's, let's note that the call of God to missions comes during a time of worship. They're worshiping God, and it leads to mission. As they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, it says. They're ministering to the Lord and fasting in verse 2. And their fasting probably tells us they were eagerly seeking the Lord's will and how to advance the gospel. They're seeking God's will for their life. God, what do you want to do with us? We're fasting. We want to know. That's what you do when you fast. You're, you're, you're trying to emphasize how eager you are to know God's will. They've picked up on what God is doing in this new church program, and they want in on it. Isn't this cool? Do you see their eagerness? They... They don't want to sit around idly. They don't want to do their own thing. But like Romans 12, 1 and 2, they want to offer themselves as an offering to God in complete surrender so that they can know His good and pleasing and perfect will for them. This is amazing. That's what they want. They don't, they don't have reservations. They won't say, they don't say like we tend to say, I'll serve you if, you know, if you don't send me to Africa or if you don't send me to Shadron. Just kidding. They don't have reservations, do they? Don't, they don't have conditions. They're not placing conditions on the Lord. They don't have any worldly idols that are holding them back. They're eager to do and go wherever God wills. I love this. They're eager to do the works that God has prepared for them. And that's what Ephesians 2.10 says, right? God has prepared works for us so that we should walk in them. From all of eternity past, He knew us. And Again, this is another good principle. Spiritually attuned believers surrender their lives to God without reserve. No ifs, no conditions. Just, Lord, here's my life, use me. Just like that song we sang with the alabaster jar. And I like their worship described as ministering to the Lord. Isn't that neat? So quite often we talk about how a church service or someone really ministered to us. Wow, that really ministered to me. That really spoke to me. Well, this, their, their, their worship service is ministering to the Lord. The Lord is refreshed by these fully devoted followers of Christ. I love that. It's refreshing God's heart. He delights in those who delight to do His will. And notice, they're, they're in harmony with God. They're spiritually attuned. He responds to it. He answers them. I love that. I love that. Do you expect God to respond to you? Expect God to speak to you, to show you His will? He will. He does. And one of the 
prayers that Jacob and I and the board pray often for our church is that our worship services here on Sunday morning would be times where we really encounter this living God of the Bible. This living God who will speak into our lives and who will change us and he'll guide us. That's one of the prayers I, I, would, I would ask you to pray for our church services. No, we, we don't want to just come here and grow in our head knowledge like he said, like Daryl prayed. Right? We want God to meet with us here, to speak to us, to guide us, encourage us, to reveal his will to us, to change our lives. And I'm just going to say this. I, I, don't know, I don't know if there's anything like knowing that you are doing God's will for your life. I love that. I'm saying that a lot today, but I, this, I dig this passage. There's nothing like knowing that you are doing God's will for your life. Can somebody say amen to that? Thanks. I appreciate the Baptists here. Guys, I'm afraid that many of us, and especially our young people, don't consider the works that God has prepared for them. They just kind of go about their lives, doing their own thing. They go to high school job fairs, and they do what they want. What do I want to do with my life? Or they listen to the voice of an adult who says, make the big money, retire early, son. Tried that. That's not what life's about, is it? It's not about just making the big money, living the American dream. It's about doing God's will. It's about following God's will for your life following his will as he leads you through life. That's what's most important. It's not happiness. Don't raise your kids to think that the goal in life is to be happy. It's not. They won't be happy if they're searching for happiness. They'll be happy once they're doing God's will for their life. That's where the true happiness is found. So you, don't, you go after happiness, you won't find it. You go after God's will, you seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and it'll be granted to you. That's what's most important. That might mean staying. For three men in this passage, it meant staying. For two men, God said, go. Sometime, I don't know, later he might call the three men who stayed in Antioch, he might later tell them to go, right? We don't, we don't know. God's will for our lives, it, it shifts, it changes. Might mean staying now, going later. For me, I've experienced both. I mean, God's will for me as a young believer, uh, as I was seeking the Lord, all he wanted me to do is just stay put, sit there in my local church and grow, soak up the Word of God. And, you know, for a while it was get involved in this youth group. For a while it was teach Sunday school to three or four kids for three years. Invest in these three and four boys for three years. For, for some time after that, it was go to, or during that time, it was kind of like go to Bible school. So I picked up my roots and I, I went to Bible school. I came back, went to South America, came back. For a year there, when I came back, I didn't do anything public, really. I, I just, I poured my heart and soul into taking care of the church's property. I mowed the lawn. And I did it with all my heart. And I tell you what, I heard God's voice speak to me that year more than I have ever heard before. 
it was loud and clear. I mean, the whole time God was calling me to the pastorate, but that year was like, it's time. I heard his voice loud and clear, and Daryl said it again, you know, it's a miracle how I ended up here. I was the guy on the bottom of the list. Maybe you think I should still be there, but <laughs> I was the last guy they called, but it was God's perfect timing, perfect timing. I was rejoicing in all of that again this week. But guys, you just, you just keep worship walking, you know? You just keep worshiping God, and he leads you and guides you. But you just, you just, you're not, you, gotta, you just got to be faithful where you are, and he'll continue to lead you and guide you. Be faithful. Um. This passage, guys, is so good for understanding God's will for our lives. And don't miss this either. The call of God takes place in a local church context. Another big takeaway. It takes place in a local church context. The church recognizes Barnabas and Saul are called by God. And in our lives, too, it's the body of Christ. It's a group of believers that starts to recognize your gifting as you interact with other members of the body. So if you're not connected to a worshiping body of believers, you're likely not exercising your gifts, or you're not exercising them to your full potential because your gifts, your spiritual gifts, were given to you so that you would minister to the rest of the body, other believers, right? Isn't that how a body works, a human body works? I mean, that's the illustration in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, you know, like a hand that's cut off from the body. I don't care what the Adams family says. It's good for nothing, right? That hand was designed to minister to the rest of the body. So if you're not connected to a local church, boy, you're really, you're really cut off. You're not spiritually attuned. And uh, it's that body that's going to recognize the place that you've been given in the body. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's how a body works. Anyway, these men, they lay hands on them, they pray over them. Spiritually attuned to people are people who pray, and they send them away. John Mark, though, John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, he joins them for the first part of this first missionary journey. Um, he would be a very helpful individual because he had personal firsthand knowledge of Christ's life. Uh, the church often met in his mother's home. But uh, we'll look at him more next time in chapter 13. Uh, let's look at chapter, er, let's, look, let's go to verse 4 and continue. Look at this next brief snippet. Uh, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis in eastern Cyprus, uh, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, this was in western Cyprus, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus, son of the Savior, um, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Um, he would have been a, kind of like a governor, a man of intelligence. That's how he's described, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Ah, you can tell he's an intelligent man right there. But Elymas, uh, the magician, that was his other name, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul 
away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So, uh, next we see the event in our outline, the events in Cyprus here. Barnabas and Saul go to the port city of Seleucia, west of Antioch. Antioch's a little inland. They go to the Seleucia, the port city, and they sail from there about 100 miles west to the Mediterranean island of Cyprus, Barnabas's old stomping grounds. This is where he's from. Uh, this is a Greek island at the time. It's the third largest island in the Mediterranean. It's about 140 miles long, so they journeyed across that 140 miles just about. And... Uh, it's about 60 miles wide, and to be honest with you, it makes me think of a swordfish. <laughs> just the shape of it. Um, just saying. But as they work their way from Salamis, the old capital and major city in the east, to Paphos, the new capital on the west end, they're preaching the good news in the synagogues. Did you catch that? Preaching the good news in the synagogues, this island was mostly Greek, but there were many Jews on the island, and the synagogues are basically the place where Jews and truth seekers met. So the synagogue for the Jew is basically what local churches are for us today. It's a place to meet. Synagogue just means gathering together, and that's what we're doing here, right? But this is a pattern that we're going to see in Paul's mission methodology. Saul will enter a city, he'll visit the Jewish synagogues, share the gospel with the Jews, find rejection, and then he's going to turn to the Gentiles where he finds more acceptance. And this is his method. Uh, It's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, right? You read about that in Romans. Jew first, then to the Gentile. It's theological. It's a God-ordained methodology for Paul. Paul loved his Jewish brethren according to the flesh, so much that he said he wished he could be accursed for their sake. Okay, because they've been hardened. They have hardness of heart. And uh, he desperately wanted to see them trust in Christ. And uh, we can learn from his heart for the Jewish people um, that uh, someone who's spiritually attuned is going to want to share the gospel, even if it means rejection. You're going to keep sharing the gospel because you understand just how critical it is. Because you, you understand that people's eternity rests on their response to the gospel. People's eternity doesn't rest on how good of a person they are. It doesn't depend on how much money they've given to a church or the religious works they've done. It depends on whether or not they've believed in the gospel. And so they, they want to, you want to share the gospel, right? If you understand how critical the gospel is, you're going to want to share it with people you love. Eternal judgment comes to those who reject the gospel. Eternal salvation to those who believe it. So we want to see people trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin. The gospel is a door to either one or the other. 
But this episode uh, where this Jewish sorcerer opposes the gospel and then this, this high up Roman governor, Sergius, receives it. This is just, guys, this is just a small taste of Saul's ministry to come. That's why it's here. It's kind of showing us some things about what's going to come in the ministry of Saul. It's a key event in the narrative that Luke's presenting. Um, it highlights the hinge, right, like a door that Acts 13 is. It's a hinge event, as we've been studying, because one, it, it demonstrates that as the church progresses to the uttermost, the Gentile darkness is going to be overpowered by the light of Christ. Light overpowers darkness. So as the gospel goes, it's going to overpower Gentile darkness. This contrast between darkness and light, um, it's thematic too. It's a theme in chapter 13 we'll look at more next time. But second, again, it's a glimpse of the ministry to come on the missionary journeys where the hard-hearted Jew, there's the hard-hearted Jews, um, they deny the gospel, the receptivity of the Gentile to the gospel. Um, that's something that Paul explains more in depth in Romans 9 through 11. Um, third, it establishes in the reader's mind and in church history, us who are reading it, it establishes for us that Saul is a divinely appointed apostle like Peter. I mean, Saul at this point in the book of Acts, let's just pretend we don't know anything about the apostle Peter. Let's just pretend that all we know and all we've read is Acts 1 through 12. What do you think of when you think of Saul? This guy is spiritually disconnected. He is persecuting the church, persecuting Christians, slaughtering them. But now, Saul is about to become Paul. That's where this has taken place. That's what Luke wants us to understand. Uh, Peter, remember, Look at the parallels here. Peter confronted a sorcerer named Simon in Acts chapter 8. Now, what is Saul doing? Encountering a sorcerer. So, it just the, the parallels here are unmistakable. He's going to take a leading role just like Peter. Um, Saul has replaced Peter as the main personality. And Luke's paralleling them. Um, Luke also emphasizes this hinge from Peter to Paul and from Jew to Gentile in a fun way just by the use of names in this passage. It was common for people to have a Jewish name and a Roman name. Saul was his Hebrew name, Jewish name. Paul, we could say, was his, his Roman name. And uh, that's the name. Paul is going to be the name that Luke uses from here on out in the book of Acts. And he does it in light of his ministry to the Gentile world and to the, to the Roman Empire, right? So from here on out, unless it's talking about, you know, his Damascus Road conversion, Saul is going to go by Paul. Also, think about this. Whereas Saul was listed, when Saul was in that list of five men, where was he? Last, dead last, right? All, all these descriptions about the other guys and Saul. And Saul. But then... Think about this, Barnabas and Saul. There's five verses, no, four verses where it's been said, Barnabas and Saul, I should go like this for you guys, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Saul's just kind of tagging along. Okay, but now look at chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions. Now Paul and Barnabas. Did you see the switch there? This is 
is what you're going to see. So this, guys, this is why I love studying the Bible, because it's these literary clues. This is not an accident that he's just, not, he's just randomly naming names. Luke is doing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to show us the theme and the thrust of the passage. Saul becomes Paul, and he goes from last, and he becomes a main apostle, a key apostle to the Gentile world. Isn't this cool? Guys, this is why we study the Bible expositionally, uh, expository. We work our way through it. We study it chunk by chunk because you see the literary clues that help you understand the big idea, what God wants us to see. Paul's moving to the forefront in, a, in attention, in the text and in history. And uh, the names and the order of them are just literary clues that show us the authorial intent. But in sum, let's just uh, let's ask Let's ask those questions again. Um, how spiritually attuned are you to the things of God? Coming back to that question. Are you attuned to the things of God? Do you know what he's doing today? Is he silent to you? Do you, do you know his program? Do you know what he's doing? Do you understand his will? Are you sensitive to the things of God, the gospel, his mission, his will for you in his mission? That's where we want to be, isn't it? We want to be spiritually attuned to the things of God, and the first step is believing the gospel. Just the, the good news that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, and he rose again from the grave to prove it. Unless you trust in Jesus Christ, you are in spiritual darkness and blindness, just like Elemis or Bar Jesus. The Apostle Paul says that the natural man, the man who hasn't believed in Christ, who doesn't have the Spirit of God, cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually appraised. If you want to understand the things of God, you've got to believe in Christ and trust in Him as your Savior. And then you'll begin things will start to click for you. Start to read the Word of God and start to understand it. Um, spiritually attuned people have believed in Jesus Christ and what He's done for them. Sergius and Bar-Jesus, these two guys, are good examples of that, aren't they? I mean, Saul's a good example of that. Saul's a guy who was like so out of tune, he was persecuting the church, and now he's this leader in the church. Look at, look at the difference between Bar-Jesus, this, this, this guy, this, this sorcerer, and, then, and, and, and Sergius. Bar-Jesus, uh, which means son of Jesus, son of the Savior, is now called what? Bar-Devil. That's what Paul calls him, son of the devil. You're not son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. Do you see the use of names here, how they're, they're teaching us? He's not a genuine son of Jesus. And there's intentional irony in, that, in, in his name. And Luke points that out. I mean, his other name is Elemis, which means wise or wizard. He's not wise. He's, he's rejected Christ and he's judged for it. And it's funny, he's, 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 he's blinded. The blindness is, is, is uh, appropriate because he's spiritually blind. Sergius Paulus is described as intelligent, and he really is because he believes the gospel. 
In light of eternity, the intelligent thing to do is to trust Christ as your Savior from sin and then to offer your life to Him as a living sacrifice and start living for the things that matter and to walk with Him, to do His will. Um, I could not help but think of this poem by missionary C.T. Studd. He wrote a poem called Only One Life. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just listen to these words. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy highway, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only when life will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. O let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last.